Uh, our scripture uh, for this morning is from Ruth uh, chapter 4, and it's on page 415 in the, in the Bibles, in the Pew Bibles. It says, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you, if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and, acquire, and from Ruth the Moabitess, you also acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead and with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become a final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, bite yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi and from the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Mahlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Mahlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by his young woman, may your family be like that of parrots, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Uh, so we're continuing our series on fixing Mrs. Jellybee syndrome, which is about how we can live wisely in the small things that we do on the ground in our daily life as Christians. Sometimes, especially in our culture, we can keep our heads in the clouds, focusing on really big systems or other stuff, and we really have no control over and we can live really foolishly on the ground with the people that we actually live with. Like Mrs. Jellybee, which is a Dickens character from the novel Bleak House, we can focus so much on doing some kind of abstract good really far away that we fail to take care of the real people in our everyday lives. So this passage gives one more example of a person who keeps his head in the clouds looking at the big picture, but loses out because he forgets to live on the ground. Meanwhile, Boaz keeps himself grounded and that works out really well for him. So one thing that's really important for understanding this passage is that the order that the books appear in the Bible was not always the same, and it's changed over time. And whatever order you put the books in was set specifically to tell a theological story. In our Bibles, for instance, Ruth is found between Judges and 1 Samuel. When it's here, Ruth tells the story of a glimmer of hope which appears during the dark time of the Judges and ends by foreshadowing the coming of David, the most important king of Israel, which will be described in the following book, 1 Samuel. 
This is a perfectly good reading of the story, and it might even be the kind of thing which Matthew had in mind when he mentioned Ruth at the beginning of his gospel. But the place you find Ruth in now is actually really different from where it used to be. The Hebrew Bible was broken up into three sections, the law, the writing, and the prophets. If those sections sound familiar to you, it's because that was probably the order that Jesus used. If you look up Luke 24:44, he uses very similar sections to describe the Old Testament. And the reason why that's important here is because Ruth is found in the writings in the Hebrew order, right after Proverbs and before Song of Solomon. If you read it with this order in mind, you read thinking about wisdom, since Proverbs is all about wisdom, and you can think about which characters are acting wisely and which ones are being foolish. What ties the books even closer together is this. If you use the Hebrew order and you're reading Proverbs 31, which is a description of a really great wife and how totally blessed it would be to have a wife like that, if you just flip the page, you're reading Ruth, which is about a really great woman who marries someone and blesses him a whole lot. And there's the clincher. The phrase which is used for really great woman or worthy wife, or whatever you, your Bible translates, Proverbs 31.10, is only elsewhere used to describe Ruth in uh, Ruth 3.11. So the tie is even stronger when you notice that Boaz in this passage is sitting at the gates with the elders of his city, which is exactly what the husband does in Proverbs 31, 23. So long story short, it seems like the author of Ruth really wants you to read the book with this theme of wisdom in mind and to recognize Ruth as that prototypical worthy woman from Proverbs 31. So keeping this in mind, and because we're just skipping the climax of the story, I think it would be helpful to remind you of the basics of that story. Naomi and her husband leave Bethlehem because there's no food there, and they move to Moab. Her sons both marry Moabite women, and they both die young. So then Naomi's husband dies, so that Naomi and the Moabite women, whose names were Ruth and Orpah, were left in a desperate situation with no family and no one to take care of them. Naomi decides that her only chance is to move back to Bethlehem where her family is, but tells Ruth and Orpah to leave her and go back to their own Moabite families. And Orpah decides to go back, but Ruth wants to go with Naomi to Bethlehem because she feels obligated to remain loyal to her, even if Naomi releases her of that obligation. And remember that this is a very risky move that Ruth is making out of love for Naomi. Ruth goes so far as to say the famous line, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. In other words, Ruth is super great. When they come to Bethlehem, Ruth notices that there's a field where she could glean which belonged to this guy named Boaz. Naomi sends Ruth to pick up some of the scraps left behind in Boaz's field for food, but Boaz notices her, and he hears the story of how Ruth left her people out of loyalty to Naomi. So then rather than being peeved at the inconvenience of someone gleaning in his fields, Boaz feels honored that such a great person would choose his field. And notice that this is where Boaz shows how wise he is. There were a lot of reasons that might have blinded Boaz from seeing how great Ruth is. She's an immigrant who's coming in and taking the scrap food off the ground. Technically, what she's doing is legal, but you'd understand why Boaz wouldn't be happy about it. But Boaz takes the time to learn Ruth's story and finds out that he's hit the jackpot. Ruth happens to be an amazing person who's given up everything out of loyalty to her mother-in-law. So not only does Boaz want to let Ruth lean in his field like the law requires him to do, not only does he go above and beyond to help her, but Boaz wants to do everything he can to get to know this girl. Because he knows that just sticking around someone like that means you're going to be blessed by her. 
you want someone like Ruth in your life. But it takes a certain kind of person to recognize someone like Ruth. A normal person would see her as an annoyance and nothing more. But that's where we can learn something really important about Boaz. When we serve other people, we get the chance to be blessed by them too. We can hear their stories and learn from them. And just because we're the ones helping them doesn't mean that they can't help us too. And sometimes you get the chance to know someone wonderful like Ruth. Plus, you get the inside track on getting to know them, because nobody else has any interest in meeting them. Hebrews says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So Boaz makes provisions to make sure that she's protected and lets her have however much food that she needs. Naomi remembers that Boaz is a relative of her husband, so he may be obligated by law to take care of her, which is a score because Boaz seems to be pretty rich. Since Naomi, um, so then Naomi advises Ruth to basically woo him so that they would be married. Instead, Boaz is really happy that he might have the right to marry her because everyone knows the whole story about how awesome Ruth is, but is only concerned that there's someone else who might have the first, be first in line to marry her, and he needs to do that in a diet chance. So apparently he didn't need much wooing. So now we get to our passage today, when this other guy gets the chance to marry Ruth. This guy reminds me of a character from a couple of episodes in The Simpsons called Frank Grimes. He's a guy who had the toughest luck in the world, but yet overcame it all and got a master's degree in physics and impressed Mr. Burns at the nuclear power plant. He gets hired to be part of the safety division of the plant, but that means that his co-worker is Homer Simpson. If you know anything about The Simpsons, you know he's not a very good worker. Of course, Frank freaks out when he realizes that the safety of the plant and of the entire town rests completely on Homer's addled brain. Homer tries to patch things up with him by inviting him to dinner at his house, but Frank gets super annoyed when he sees that he has a beautiful family, a massive house, could afford to put lobster on the table for dinner, and that his son owned a factory. Long story. At work the next day, Frank goes absolutely insane, impersonating Homer by doing outrageously dangerous things until he dies of electrocution. The creators of the show have said that Frank's character was their way of highlighting how the world of The Simpsons is completely absurd. Homer lives a charmed life, doesn't deserve anything that comes to him, and never faces the consequences for his actions. The creators said that Frank Grimes is what happens when a real-life, normal, hard-working person is dropped in the middle of that world. They go completely insane and they self-destruct. And this unnamed other redeemer is a lot like Frank Grimes for the character narrator of Ruth. The world that the narrator describes seems to have nothing but perfect people. Throughout the book, you see so many people not only following the Torah to the letter, but going well beyond what's required of them for each other. Ruth forsakes her own home and safety to follow Naomi. Naomi encourages Ruth and Orpah to leave her for their own sake. And Boaz makes sure that Ruth is safe and gives her a ton of food. In 2.4, everyone greets each other with, The Lord be with you, and the Lord bless you. And it's great, but where else do you see anyone acting like this in Israel in the Old Testament, and especially in the time of the judges? Without this other redeemer, you might think that if you placed yourself in this world of nearly perfect people, that you'd be like Naomi, who's motherly and shrewd, or Boaz, who's wise and generous, or Ruth, who's the actual Proverbs 31 woman. Just like dropping Frank Grimes into Springfield, mentioning normal characters, like this other relative with selfish but all-too-realistic motives, 
helps you to recognize just how hard it is to act righteously and wisely in the world that you live in, because you're just not a perfect Bible character. Each one of us is far more likely to be like this other guy than one of the main characters. So now in this passage, Boaz is talking to this other relative, the normal Frank Grimes kind of guy that has the first right to marry Ruth and buy Naomi's husband's land. When you read it, you can kind of tell that Boaz really wants him to refuse, because he's trying to show deference, but is also constantly mentioning how happy he would be to take on the obligation, which is Ruth, since what he's hiding for him is that it wouldn't be an obligation, but something that he really wants to do. He also mentions the land first and kind of springs Ruth on him at the last second, hoping that the surprise might cause him to refuse. Anyway, what ends up happening is that the Frank Grimes kind of guy is very interested in buying the land and was purposely happy to fulfill that obligation because it was within his interests. But when he hears that he would also need to marry Ruth, he balks. Apparently, he did not think as highly of Ruth as we all do, knowing what everything that's happened so far, and almost comes as a surprise that this worthy woman would be the thing that holds up the deal. The funny thing is, you might be thinking that the problem with this guy was that he's selfish. You see him wanting to acquire the land, but not marry Ruth, and think that he's been willing to make some money off his relatives, but wasn't willing to take on the burden of caring for them. But if you remember the rest of the story and how Ruth to Boaz wasn't a burden, but someone so valuable, you recognize that the real issue with him isn't his selfishness, though he was selfish, but they had no idea what was good for him. Someone wise like Boaz recognizes that it's a privilege to marry a worthy woman like Ruth, someone who, according to Proverbs 31, was more precious than jewels and fields and stuff. The point that the book of Ruth seems to be making is that it's not always so easy to recognize the worthy woman of Proverbs, Proverbs 31. It takes a wise person to judge someone's character rightly and not get trapped by the allure of worldly gain. And this wisdom, at least in this case, ends up being 100% within the selfish interests of the wise. It's so revealing that Boaz is called a worthy man in 2.1, which is the exact same adjective as the one used for Ruth and for the Proverbs 31 woman. Sometimes it takes a worthy man to be wise enough to cut through all the worldly ways of judging people to be able to recognize the worthy woman. In the end, the main excuse that this Frank Grimes kind of guy makes for not taking Ruth as his wife was that it would mess up his own inheritance and legacy. It's almost hilarious how wrong he is. There's a reason why we're calling him the Frank Grimes kind of guy and not his real name. We don't know his real name. And the narrator basically goes out of his way to avoid giving him a name. In fact, one of the hardest parts of translating this passage is having to deal with all the workarounds that the narrator uses so he doesn't have to use his name. In verse one, a lot of translations say, turn aside friend, sit here. But that word for friend isn't the normal word for friend. The other two times it appears in the Bible, it's translated as such a such a place. I kind of like the King James Version that says, ho, such a one. Or Robert Alter's translation that says, sit down here, so and so. (laughs) Basically, the author uses some super awkward language as flashing lights for you to pay attention to the fact that he has no name. Like any Frank Grimes kind of person would, this relative, judge, this relative judges Ruth based on outwardly worldly stuff, like the fact that she's an immigrant and that she's poor and that she might make his inheritance a little bit messy. And he misses the chance to have the amazing blessing of the actual Proverbs 31 woman as his wife. What really drives the point home is the genealogy at the end of the book, 
where Boaz and his inheritance is connected to King David and ultimately to Christ. While this Frank Grimes kind of guy, who wanted to make sure his inheritance and his legacy would be secure forever, actually becomes a faceless, nameless nobody. Basically, us normal people are focused on everyday stuff like land and inheritance and our legacy and judge people like Ruth accordingly, while our chance to be ridiculously blessed by God slips through our fingers. What I'm talking about here might sound like it's a nice but unrealistic outlook on life, or like it could be summarized in a pithy statement like, don't judge a book by its cover. You might be wondering why this way of seeing other people is such a big deal, why it's worth dedicating a whole sermon to it. But I actually believe that this is central to the gospel, is one of the primary things that the Holy Spirit is helping us to do. For an example, have you ever thought about how absurd the story of the cross might sound to a normal person? To put it another way, who is the Frank Grimes in the story of the crucifixion? Wouldn't we be far more likely to be a part of the cheering crowd which yells crucify him? Wouldn't we be the ones who gives the Messiah lashes or trying in vain to wash our hands of the guilt of his death? But what the gospel accounts asked us to do is to believe that the one who was really in charge was the one who was experiencing the greatest possible shame, who collapsed under the weight of his cross and who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hebrews 12 says, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. A Christian is someone who believes that somehow the crown of thorns is a real crown, that the cross is a real throne, and the one who is dying is not only the king of the Jews, but the king of the whole world. In other words, all the Frank Grimes kind of people in the story of the cross completely failed to judge Christ rightly. If you become a Christian, this is something you believe, whether you know it or not. You believe that Christ has shown the world's way of judging other people to be completely bankrupt. Because what else could be the case if you believe such things about the one on the cross? That's the scandal of the cross. Like Paul says, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God even chose what is not to bring to nothing the things that are. In economics, there's this idea called market inefficiency. And that's where everybody, the way that everybody does things is actually not the best way to do things. Maybe they make a certain product in a dumb way that makes it more expensive than it needs to be. Some businesses become really profitable, profitable because they fix those market inefficiencies. They might make the product cheaper in a cheaper way without sacrificing quality, which lets them undercut their competitors. In other words, finding market inefficiencies is like hitting the jackpot. What books like Ruth say is that there's a market inefficiency in the way that people in the world judge each other. People are all out for personal gain and try to find the really high status people in the world and schmooze with them but then they don't get to know some of the lower status people who would actually be much better friends and would actually bless them way more. What that means is that if we recognize this inefficiency, we've hit the jackpot. We can look through silly worldly standards and meet some really awesome people and be totally blessed by them, just as Boaz was blessed by Ruth. As the church, we only stand to benefit from how bad worldly standards are at judging people. Imagine if we could see other people through the wise eyes of the Holy Spirit and call the people in the world who were outcasts um, to find a home in the church. What would happen if we stopped trying to play the worldly game 
and obsessing over power and bid systems, instead play the church's game by becoming the place for the socially irrelevant. You wouldn't have to imagine very long if you just took a look at the early church, which became a home for slaves and women, and grew so large that it bloodlessly conquered the very Roman Empire that crucified the Messiah in just a few short centuries using exactly this strategy. If we take the message of Ruth seriously, we won't only bless the world, but we will also be blessed ourselves. It is 100% in our selfish interests to see other people, not through the worldly lens like race, gender, politics, attractiveness, et cetera, et cetera, but as people made in the image of God who have something real to offer us. Let's pray. God, give us your own wisdom, which chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. Help us to notice those things, those who need to be comforted and served, so we would carry out the work of your kingdom, and so that we can also be blessed by knowing them. Amen.